It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome everyone to episode 43 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing? Hi, good. I thought we were recording something else just then, so I wasn't ready. Now I'm ready and I'm here. Yes. Good. Okay, I'm glad. You're here? You're ready to go? you ready to roll? I've only had a week off, so it's not quite enough. I'm not caught up. It's thrown you a bit, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've got some uh, Patreon shout outs this week, Chloe. We have. Thank you so much and welcome to Amy Butler, Christian Hill, Laura Keen Morris, Ronnie H, Christian Inkpen, Sam Gardner, Daryl Rayner, Liz Amy, Jacinta Sweet, Joe Exotic, Travis Appleton, Chris Imlach, Chris Tetchens, Janine Botfield, Joe and Amy Savage. Thanks for the support, everyone. That's much appreciated. A few familiar names there, Chloe, I think. Um, so we appreciate uh, that support. Joe Exotic. Are we... Um, I spoke to him on messages on Patreon and I didn't ask him about his true identity. He was super nice, um, the person I spoke to, whoever that may be. Um, the Facebook group was all adamant that I just said that name as it was. Um I mean, he's not in jail, the one I spoke to, and didn't seem to want to talk about big cats, so I can't confirm nor deny the identity. <laughs> no, fair's fair, and we appreciate the support. But, uh, yeah, it did, did, did raise the eyebrows, that one. But uh, thank you, Joe, and uh, everyone else. We uh, sincerely appreciate it. Today we're talking about the disappearance of Tony Jones, not the newsreader or reporter, Chloe, different Tony Jones, but we mentioned this briefly in our previous episode on Andy Albury. And I, for one, am pretty pumped for today's case, almost Ashley Coulston-level pumped, Chloe. Not in terms of the subject matter, obviously, all the cases that we cover are generally devastating, but in terms of its unsolved nature. I know most people enjoy the solved cases and hearing how the investigation unfolds. I think we've pretty much covered all solved cases this year, right, Chloe? I think there was maybe one or two that might have had some unsolved elements to them, but uh, linked crime. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but this will be the first sort of standalone unsolved case for a while, and, and they're ones I'm quite passionate about. And this one today it surprised me how big of a case it was. You know, not that we like to rank cases in terms of how big they are. You know, one innocent life 
isn't worth more than another. But it surprised me this one with how much there was to it and how much has come out of it in both a case-specific manner and also in the broader sense. One thing I want to mention up front about this one, though, you know, we always do our best to remain respectful of the victims and families in these cases. That's always a priority and at the forefront of our minds, right? Secondly, we try to somewhat mute any strong opinions on the police and their investigation when it's it's seemingly not gone too well. You know, like we always say, right, it's, it's super easy to sit here on a podcast and an armchair detective that stuff when all the facts are laid out and the future is behind us plain for all to see. But that's very different when things are unraveling in front of police investigating these crimes in real time. Conversely, we always focus on a great investigation and the police involved in that, which is more often than not, to be honest, but sometimes there's just no getting around the bad ones, and this is one of those. So we're going to put our backpacks on and jump into our true blue time machine, heading back to the early 80s, back up in our top end. And this was a time when backpacking around the country and indeed abroad was a popular thing to do and hitchhiking a much more common method of getting around. Third of November, 1982. Ross Lee, Queensland. 20-year-old Tony Jones called his family back home in Perth from a phone booth in Bower Road. It was around 10 to 9 in the evening. Before he thumbed for his next ride that night, continuing his trip towards Mount Isa to meet his brother Tim, Tony had to call home first. To check in, sure, but most importantly, to wish his sister a happy birthday. He did that, spoke to his mum and his brother Mark, who joked with Tony that when he decided to come home, he'd have to find another room because Mark had moved into his. The brothers laughed and Tony told Mark he'd had a couple of nights on the beach and had been harder in recent times to get a ride, but he was hopeful this evening. Tony ended the call with his family and left that phone booth in Bower Road, Rossley, never to be seen or heard from again. Tony Jones was born on the 3rd of July 1962 to parents Kevin and Berris. He was one of seven children in the Jones family. Some reports said eight, but we'll go with seven, Chloe. He was a slim, long brown-haired, green-eyed young man who had the world at his feet. His brother Brian described Tony in his book, Searching for Tony. Tony was a fine-looking lad. He was tall and lean with brown shoulder-length hair a dark gingery beard which framed a winsome smile. Good-natured, affable and easygoing, he was regarded as a great bloke amongst his friends and endeared as the kid brother of the family. And like many of us at this time in our lives, Tony was looking for something adventurous. So in May of 1982, he left his job, family and girlfriend Natalie behind to go off trekking around Australia. This was planned to be a working holiday with a few mates, not a solo hitchhiking adventure as it would turn out to be. Tony had tried other adventurous pursuits, skydiving, 
gold prospecting, kangaroo shooting, but none had given him that ultimate buzz or freedom that he desired. This trip was going to be that notch in the belt for Tony. Tony and his mates left Perth and headed to Adelaide first, then went on to Melbourne, up to Canberra and then Sydney from there. And as they went along, Tony touched base with his family regularly. Payphones were the method back then. Nowadays, you are hard-pressed to find one. It's actually a good game to play when you're driving around, spot the payphone. There's two in my beautiful country town. They're as bad as rare as a goal in soccer. But no mobiles back then in the early 80s, obviously. No apps to get your business done. No seek for those searching for work. And Tony and his mates were searching for work but had very little luck landing any in Sydney. So Tony and his crew took the train up to sunny Brisbane. This was a clever move by the young lads as the Commonwealth Games was on at this time, so they probably thought there'd be something they could get in on, whether that was passing Robert DiCostella drinks at intervals during his marathon or crushing some chalk for Dean Lucan before he ripped a clean and jerk. Whatever they could find. But it was slim pickings for the Perth boys when it came to jobs at the Com Games. A good thought, but they had no luck. Tony and his mates all went on the dole for a few weeks after this as they became light on coin, and this had a marked impact on Tony's mates. Lisa Curry's breaststroke wasn't enough to keep the boys in Brisbane, so they decided to return home back to Perth. But Tony loved Brisbane. He really enjoyed it there. Maybe it was the weather, or as you might say, Sean, maybe it was Raylene Boyle thrashing the pants off the poms on the racetrack. Yes. Or... (laughs) Maybe it was because the Brisbane show was about to begin. Yes, that'd be enough to lure me, Chloe, a few Bertie Beetle show bags. Anyhow, Tony ended up finding a job working at the Brisbane show, and soon after he worked at a cannery too. So Brisbane had been kind to Tony Jones. His brother, Tim, showed up in town a little while after this, hoping the Sunshine State would smile upon him too. Tim had the grand plan of riding his bike from Brisbane across Australia all the way back to Perth. That's some ride. Maybe Tim should have been competing at the Commonwealth Games there, Chloe. So Tim and Tony caught up and hatched the excellent plan to come back home to Perth together. Neither of the lads had seen the top end, so they agreed to take this scenic route back. The Jones family were rapt to hear that Tony, having been away for over six months by this point, would be home by Christmas with his brother Tim. Their mum, Beres, was a bit worried about one thing, though. Tony didn't have the athletic attributes his brother Tim had. Riding a bike from Brisbane to Perth wasn't in his wheelhouse. Hitchhiking, though? You beauty, right up Tony's alley. The easygoing, affable young lad would make a time of it and meet up with Tim along the way at different checkpoints, if you will. And as they went, both Tim and Tony would keep in touch with their parents in Perth or with their sister in Sydney. Tony and Tim began phase one of their top-end return trip, travelling from Brisbane to Airlie Beach. They went in their own directions to see what they each wanted before rendezvousing. After a few days at Airlie Beach, the pair moved north to Townsville. They'd made a pair of friends in Airlie Beach and they accompanied Tony and Tim to Townsville, where the foursome stayed at the Sun City Caravan Park in Rosslea for another short time. Next stop for the brothers was Mount Isa, But Tony wanted to do a short stop in Cairns as he hadn't been there before and wanted to see some of the place while he was in the area. So he went further north while Tim pedalled west. There was about 900 kilometres or 400-ish miles between Cairns and Mount Isa for Tony to travel once he'd had his time in Cairns. 
and he took the route back via Townsville, which he was familiar with having stayed there before. And it was here at the phone booth in Bower Road, Rossley, that Tony would speak with his family for the last time, and we covered this in the introduction. Obviously, neither Tony or his family knew that at the time, but after this, Tony simply vanished without a trace. Here's a clip of Tony's brother Mark talking about that last phone call. He talked about coming down from Cairns. Uh, He talked about having to sleep on the the beaches, that lifts were tough to get along that part of the highway compared to his earlier travels. Um, He warned me that he'd be back soon and to make sure his bed was ready when he returned. And as we said in the beginning, this was the 3rd of November 1982 at this time. And I suppose we have to at least touch on the topic of hitchhiking in general just quickly. Obviously, nowadays, you rarely see someone thumbing for a ride, let alone travelling around the country in such fashion. But as we often say in many of these cases, that wasn't the case back at this time. In fact, it's probably incidents like this that led to that change in mindset when it came to hitchhiking. And we'll talk a little more about this particular region and some other crimes and disappearances a little later when we discuss theories. But for now... Yeah, as you said, Glow, I think it's important to at least touch on the normality of this at the time. While some people, such as parents, had a normal amount of concern, it was something youngsters did back then. But getting back to Tony's trek, he'd had $150 deposited into his bank account, which he was to pass on to Tim when he arrived in Mount Isa. But Tony didn't arrive in Mount Isa the following day, or in the following week even. And that's really when the concern turned to alarm bells for the Jones family, when on November 11th they had not heard from Tony and he hadn't arrived to meet Tim. November 11 was said to be a day of significance for the Jones family, so for them not to hear from Tony, for him not to show in Mount Isa as planned, this was unlike him. Add to this that Tony had a grand total of $2.99 in his bank account at the time he last spoke to his family, He hadn't touched this or the $150 his folks had deposited for Tim. Again, unusual, as Tony had been in the daily habit of withdrawing around $5 to get by. He'd also not shown to collect his latest dole check. So we've got a number of concerning things here that the Jones family are noticing, and this led to them reporting Tony missing. They contacted the Townsville police, but they advised that Tim should lodge the report in person at Mount Isa Police Station. Tim did just that, but upon following up a short time later to confirm what was being done, Barris, Tony's mum, was told that Tim's report hadn't been taken that seriously. Obviously the seriousness of it all ramped up when the missing person's mum got on the blower, The police subsequently got Tim to come back in to provide some more details. Again, this attitude was indicative of the times and the profiling. Young bloke hitchhiking, probably hooked up with someone or went on a bender. Believe it or not, but there weren't really many, if any, missing young hitchhikers in this area at this time. I think it would garner a different reaction nowadays, at least you'd hope so. Police even commented at the time that if it were a girl, it'd be different, but 11 or 12 days for a lad to go missing wasn't cause for alarm. Boys will be boys. Reports of a couple of sightings of Tony at Julia Creek between Townsville and Mount Isa during this time, after he was reported missing, would provide the Jones family with a false sense of hope when they were discovered to be cases of mistaken identity. 
The Jones family would end up flying from Perth to Townsville when it became apparent the police investigation into Tony's disappearance was seriously lacking. And unfortunately, this investigation would end up being a bumbling clusterfuck by top-end cops who seemed more concerned with their daily double at Doombin than actually finding Tony Jones. In this case, while you can understand much of what the police said to the Jones family in the sense of, yeah, they get heaps of these reports, most of them turn up, you can understand the language being used to try and calm a distressed parent down, but behind the scenes, the wheels have to be turning, you know, the investigation has to be happening, and it doesn't seem like that happened, or at least it wasn't communicated. Brian and Mark, two of Tony's brothers, would accompany their mum on the flight to Townsville to effectively begin their own investigation and start getting some media coverage behind their son and brother's disappearance. Tim would also arrive shortly after to help. They went on local radio stations 4AY and the ABC radio, and Beres got in touch with Telecom, who we now know as Telstra, to try and trace Tony's last call to them. After getting the usual call centre malarkey of being transferred to almost every department, Berris, understandably frustrated with Telecom's commitment to trace the call within three weeks, told the operator that three weeks could be the difference between finding Tony alive or dead. Within the hour, Telecom phoned the local police inspector's office, advising that the phone call had been made from a phone booth in Bower Road, Rossley, at 8.50pm on November the 3rd. So this gave the investigation a place to start at least. A canvas of the area was on the cards now. Door-to-door inquiries. Any witnesses who might have seen Tony hitchhiking. But police declined the Joneses' family's request to undertake this. So they did it themselves and found one person who had seen someone matching Tony's description hitchhiking towards Mount Isa on the night of the 3rd. And again, you have to ask at this point, what were police doing if not undertaking the most basic form of investigation? It was literally a silver platter lead that the lad's own mother had to dig up herself and they still wouldn't drive there and walk around for half an hour with their notebooks. And... That was probably because it went against their primary investigation method at that time, which was to wait. All we can do now is wait, the police said. In the words of Tom Petty, the waiting is the hardest part. And it sure was for the Jones family, as police refused to work alongside the Jones brothers, Brian and Mark, as they pursued leads police had neglected to follow up. Perhaps the police should have got Tom Petty in to help with these leads because the investigation was seemingly free-falling like a refugee. But Tom Petty puns aside, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the Jones family at this point. They were understandably frustrated, wanting to be kept in the loop with some news, waiting for a call that never came. They felt it likely that Tony was dead, but was it an accident or had he become the victim of an outback killer? But while police were busy not following up suspects and mixing up Tony Jones's dental records, brothers Mark and Brian continued working away on asking the important questions. What had happened to Tony's rifle? Had something gone down in Cairns, known to be a drug haven at this time? Had a skirmish Tony had gone into with a bouncer in Townsville led to something much more sinister? All questions that went unanswered and were left uninvestigated by the police. 
And we'll circle back to some of these details later on when they come up in the timeline, particularly the part about the rifle, which Tony quietly carried with him dismantled in his backpack. But for the time being, it was a fruitless, frustrating and hopeless time for the Jones family, who returned to Perth with no better idea as to what might have happened to their son and brother. And while they all sat there wishing that he might wander in on Christmas Day later that year, he never did. The never-ending quest for answers on what happened to Tony was seemingly over for the Jones family at one point, however, when the Townsville police received a letter professing to know where the young man's body was buried. It read, I believe the body of AJ Jones is buried in or near Fullerton Riverbed within 100 yards south side of the Flinders Highway. And the letter was signed off with the name Lokiel. And this was a strange name that the family tried to wrap their heads around. I'll look this guy up, Chloe. Turns out Lokiel was some kind of clan chief of the Camerons in the Scottish Highlands back in the day. But he was no Jamie Fraser, this bloke. He was apparently a vampire of sorts. Uh, he used to kill his enemies sort of Dracula style with a, a chew on the jugular. So he's a real sick bastard. The Fullerton Riverbed was searched off the back of this letter. No races running that day close, so the police went out there for a look, but there was no trace of Tony Jones discovered. The Jones family published a reply to Lokiel, urging him to come forward, but whoever he was, he didn't, despite a $5,000 reward in place for information leading to a solution at the time. That reward would increase to $20,000 six months after Tony's disappearance. But that too didn't sweeten the deal enough for anyone to come forward with information. The letter remained a confusing point for the Jones family, however, particularly in that it referred to Tony as AJ Jones. He'd only been referred to in the media as Tony or Anthony at that time, so the fact that his middle initial was included made them think there was potentially something to it. Combine that with the fact that the letter had been posted from Cairns, somewhere Tony had recently stayed, which made this piece of evidence all the more compelling. Ultimately, nothing would come from the Lokiel letter. In fact, nothing would come of anything for a very long time for the Jones family. The case would disappear into the ether, become cold, and despite the family's persistent and consistent lobbying for fresh information, the late 80s and 90s would see next to nothing surfacing in the case, aside from the occasional false sighting or crank call to the family. Five years after Tony's disappearance, so around 1987-88, Brian Jones wrote a book which we mentioned briefly earlier, entitled Searching for Tony. His work and that of the Jones family would also shine a light on the fact that there was no support system for families of missing people. And if you think that... You know, there's well over 30,000, I mean, close to 40,000, I think, now, people who you know, are reported missing in Australia each year. Uh, that's a hell of a lot of families without a network. And thus, from the case of their missing boy, Tony, the Jones family really inadvertently started Missing Persons Week, which we know very well now and occurs each year in August. In 1992, Tony's mother, Beres, sadly passed away, not knowing what happened to her boy, 
which was said to be heartbreaking for her. In 2002, we'd see the first of what would end up being three coronial inquests into Tony's disappearance and probable death. The coroner, Ian Fisher, found that Tony was dead, that he died on or around the 3rd of November 1982 at the hands of a person or persons unknown. Despite this, the Jones family, who had held a funeral for Tony at this point to give them some semblance of peace or ability to cope with their loss, couldn't get a death certificate for Tony due to some back-to-front legislation at the time. This was eventually changed in 2005 and a death certificate issued to the family in 2006. The resounding issue with the first inquest documents, however, which the Jones family were only able to get their hands on that same year in 2006, was that the documents contained more questions than answers. As per previously experienced with the inept investigation at the time in 1982, a string of leads hadn't been looked into. Surprise, surprise. When the Jones family contacted police and officials about this, requesting the case be referred to the cold case unit and investigated with fresh eyes, that request was denied. So the Jones family petitioned to then Attorney General Cameron Dick in 2009 to reopen the inquest. Dick, acting in line with his surname, ignored the petition for 15 months until in September 2010 when the Queensland government launched a campaign called Walk a Day in My Shoes. This was in response to the dwindling numbers in recent opinion polls. So Brian Jones, God bless his cotton socks, posted Cameron Dick a pair of shoes and dared him to walk a day in the shoes of a victim of Queensland crime. I like to think the brand of shoes were Dickies that Brian sent, but it's more likely to have been a simple pair of Dunlop volleys. Whatever the case, it worked, and Dick announced that he'd given the green light to State Coroner Michael Barnes to reopen the inquest. After this, we'd see more activity in regards to many of these lost leads and mysterious nothings being done by police over the past two decades. First would be a search of an area, a campsite, near the intersection of Quamby Road and Barclay Highway in Cloncurry. It came out that an old-time grazier from the region had handed evidence over to police some 29 years earlier, physical evidence that might have related to Tony. This was some bits of camping gear, a letter addressed to Tony from his mum, and some disturbances in the nearby soil as if there'd been an altercation of sorts. But police at the time, according to old mate Grazier, had fobbed off the evidence and it had since been lost and forgotten about. The increase in press about Tony's disappearance and the reopening of the coronial inquest in 2010 is what prompted the retired Grazier to come forward again, having been frustrated at the time with the police's lack of response. On October 11, 2011, the area in Cloncurry was searched by police and SES volunteers. However, no sign of Tony's belongings or his remains were found. It was later concluded that the letter was a hoax and the riverbed had been flooded and flowing probably many times in the past two decades, so it was really a pointless search. But with the time elapsed and DNA evidence in 2010 being significantly advanced since the 80s, the Jones family intelligently went back to police querying the Lochiel letter, Surely that could be re-examined to potentially identify the letter writer. We've seen that in other cases before, right, Chloe, where fingerprints or DNA profiles have been obtained from envelopes or stamps. 
unsurprisingly, police admitted to coronial investigators that they'd lost the lochial letter and couldn't conduct such tests. Secondly, we had a suspect who'd flown under the radar seemingly until this reopening of the inquest, the second time around, we'll call it. Back in 1982, at the time of Tony's disappearance, a witness had reported seeing Tony on the night that he disappeared at the Rising Sun Hotel with an older man. And he'd given a description of this bloke and helped police do up an identikit image of him. The police pounced on this and published the identikit image locally 10 years later in 1992, you know, when it was all still fresh in everyone's mind. There'd be a couple of versions of this sketch, but essentially it was this leather-faced old bloke in a wide-brimmed hat. But apparently, according to word on the street at the time, it was a decent enough resemblance to former police superintendent Mervyn Henry Stevenson. Described as the last of the corned beef and damper coppers, Mervyn retired as officer in charge of Townsville Police about a year before Tony's disappearance. His reputation was mixed and he apparently had ties with the maligned Crooked Creek Cattle Company. Merv's name was mentioned in 2001 inquest documents. However, his involvement in Tony's disappearance had never been investigated by police at that time. Merv was inducted into the Stockman's Hall of Fame in 2001 and died of cancer later that year, receiving a police guard of honour at his funeral. A similar scenario would present with respect to three other persons of interest, two named Pickering and Douglas, neither which police looked into for seven years, by which time both men had gone the way of Merv Stevenson and died. And then a third lead, again handed to police by a grazier, mentioning a bloke who seemingly had murderous inclinations and potential connections to this case. We don't have his name, but that really doesn't matter as he was never spoken to, and he's probably eating corned beef and damper with Merv Stevenson, Pickering and Douglas now. What we do know is that none of these leads were ever properly investigated, discussed or documented until the second coronial inquiry. As much as I'd like to say it stops there, as we roll into 2015 at this point, the results of a reopened coronial inquiry finally getting this investigation on the straight and narrow, unfortunately, that doesn't appear to have happened either. We mentioned the rifle Tony was known to carry a bit earlier. Now, Tony didn't mouth off about this. It was known to those close to him he was carrying this 22 calibre rifle in his backpack with him, disassembled, but he didn't advertise, so people new to meeting him wouldn't have known. But had they found out somehow? Had this rifle caused some tension perhaps with somebody Tony had just met? In 2015, the police decided, finally, it was time to try and locate this missing firearm something the Jones family had advised them of back in 1982. Police released a photo to the public of the rifle to try and jog anyone's memory who might have come across it in the past few decades. But unfortunately, they released a photo of the wrong type of rifle. It wasn't the same as Tony's rifle. So again, did they just not consult the Jones family on this? Did someone just guess what the rifle was? It was said that this error was pointed out to the police pretty quickly, yet they continued to question potential persons of interest who'd been unearthed via tip-offs and showing them this incorrect photo. We'll post a photo of what we believe to be the correct rifle. In the meantime, police continued looking for leads surrounding the rifle with the thought that it could have been used in Tony's murder. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now, Tony's disappearance and probable murder has been connected loosely to a number of other disappearances and murders that have occurred in the same region over the past few decades. This stretch of the Flinders Highway has become known as the Highway of Death, and the cases that have been thrown into the mix alongside Tony's as being connected with this theory are innumerable, and they cross over into a number of other cases and suspects, some we've covered, such as Arthur Brown, and some we've yet to cover, such as Ivan Malat. We'll run through some of these cases briefly. The Spear Creek murders in 1978, the murder and respective disappearance of Robin Hoyneville Bartram and Anita Cunningham, the 1970 murders of Judith and Susan Mackay, who we know Arthur Brown committed, the 1974 murder of Catherine Graham, who Brown remains a prime suspect for, and even cases as recent as 2017, with the separate disappearances of young men Reese Kearney and Jaden Penno Thompson have been connected to this Flinders Highway of Death theory. One could waste hours looking for links in these cases, but in reality, it's unlikely they are connected, and many have strong individual suspects or have actually been solved. You could reach even further in connecting unsolved cases from this time period too, going as far down as the Gold Coast when looking at murdered hitchhikers and other cases such as the disappearance of Marilyn Wallman in 1972, another that Arthur Brown had been connected with. Andy Albury, who we covered in our uh, most recent episode, has also been suggested as a suspect in Tony's murder after he allegedly confessed to knowing details about the crime. But apparently when he was speaking of this crime, there was evidence to suggest that he was talking about the news reporter Tony Jones and not the 20-year-old Tony Jones, the actual subject, when providing his limited confession to knowing something about the crime. And really, that was the case with many crimes that Andy Albury would big note himself as having knowledge of or being involved in. At the end of the day, there was nothing credible to his claims in relation to Tony's disappearance. But Andy Albury wasn't the only person who made confessions pertaining to the murder of Tony Jones. In 2011, around the time of the increased media exposure surrounding Tony's case, the reopened coronial inquest and the Cloncurry search, a former prisoner at Townsville Correctional came forward implicating a former cellmate of his who had apparently done a bloke out near Mount Isa around the same time Tony went missing. This person of interest was identified as Michael James Laundess. Further information from Laundess was expected to be provided at the reopening of the then stalled coronial inquest, but with all the red tape surrounding that, like many before him in this investigation, Laundess died in October of 2015 before he could be questioned further about the allegations. So as always with these types of cases, a lot of speculation surrounding links to other cases and potential suspects. 
alongside the usual slew of false sightings and dead-end leads. But in 2014, as the second inquest into Tony's disappearance was reopening, this was effectively take two of the inquest, making it the third time around as far as I can tell. It's kind of been an ongoing opening, hold, reopening pattern over the past decade. But police got some fresh and credible information leading to a pair of persons of interest in the region of Hewenden, a town halfway between Townsville and Mount Isa. Now, Hewenden as a location had been mentioned way back in 1982. Police had actually visited and taken some statements from people who had allegedly seen Tony around November 12. Ultimately, these sightings were confusing Uh, with no real credibility. Some people noted the person they saw was a young Indigenous man. Another said they saw a guy who was of Italian descent. And finally, a guy with an Abraham Lincoln-style beard, which Tony actually had at one point, but had since shaved off before his disappearance. As a result, these sightings were dismissed at the original 2002 coronial inquiry, But the new information leading police back to Hewenden hadn't come up before, nor had the two men at the centre of the allegations been on anyone's radar. Until 2011, when four women came forward to police, three of whom alleged one of these men had confessed to murdering a young male hitchhiker or backpacker in 1982. These women alleged that one of these men had confessed to helping his friend dispose of the young hitchhiker's body in an outback slaughterhouse in Hewenden around the time of Tony's disappearance. These two men are named Kevin Wright and John Eastoff. And the gist of the confessions is that Kevin Wright, while hysterically drunk and at times sobbing, curled up in a fetal position, confessed to his former partners, Natalie Parker and Jerry Stanfield, that his mate Johnny Eastoff had shown up at his house in the middle of the night asking for help. Apparently Johnny had punched this hitchhiker and broken his neck. Wright then claimed to have picked up the body and cut it up with a bandsaw at his father's slaughterhouse in Hewenden, before burning the body in pits used to burn off bones of slaughtered animals. Wright used the word backpacker actually, not hitchhiker, but said it was someone no one would miss. Wright and Eastoff had been best mates their entire life, and known around Hewenden as a pair who loved a drink and loved to throw hands after a few too many brews. Wright said this happened when he was 17, which by deduction meant the year was 1982. At this time, he was an apprentice at his father's butcher shop and the slaughterhouse. Eastoff's family lived in Hewenden too, but he attended a boarding school in Townsville. John Eastoff's former partner, Jennifer Crisp, was one of the four aforementioned women who came forward in 2011, and subsequently her and the tales from two of Wright's partners were told to 60 Minutes in somewhat recent times. When the reporter asked her if John had ever threatened to kill her, here's what Jennifer said. He would say to me, um, I'm going to put you in the ground, um, and I'd say, well, that's stupid. You know, you do me in, the kids would have no mother, you'd go to jail, they'd have no father. He said, I'm too smart for that. They've got to prove it was me. They're never going to prove it was me. So he'd boast to you that he could get away with killing you if he wanted to? Yeah, quite often. He's um, ripped shower curtains down from the railing and choked me with, strangled me with uh, 
shower curtain, um, held me up against the wall, choking me, throwing me to the ground like a little rag doll. And are you remonstrating with him while he's doing this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What would he say? Yeah. There's no getting through to them once they're in that... Once they're in that rage, I don't know, you just their eyes turn, they're just a different person. So according to Jennifer, John's local reputation for enjoying a drink and a fight extended into the family home, where he allegedly said what he said to her and additionally choked her with a shower curtain at one stage. Kevin Wright, too, was said by his former partner of 18 years, Natalie Parker, to be a very violent man. Natalie said that he beat and choked her and threatened that he knew how to get away with murder. The pair had two sons together and Natalie said that Wright threatened to kill her and their sons if she ever left him. Here's a clip of Natalie talking about Kevin Wright's relationship with John Eastoff. I've noticed that Kevin, to me, his behaviour was different when Johnny was around. So I did ask him one night, what is the hold that Johnny has on him? And um, he did say that Johnny and I have done things together that nobody will ever know about. So was there any weight to these emotional drunk confessions by Kevin Wright? After all, John Eastoff had never mentioned such a thing. Or were we dealing with a pair of bitter ex-partners here? Well, it had turned out Kevin Wright had confessed to another partner of his too, a more recent partner named Jerry Stanfield. She's actually the one who went to police after he made the confession. The story was similar to how it all went down previously, crying while drunk in the fetal position. Jerry brought it up with him while he was showing her around his hometown one day, to which Wright denied he ever said such a thing. But when she went to police, Wright forced her to go back and withdraw the report. Jerry did, fearing for the lives of her daughters and herself if she didn't retract what she had said. Wright drove her there and parked outside when she went into the police station. So I think, as I said, I think Jerry actually came forward first, but it took her a couple of years to do so after they eventually parted ways, her and Wright. And her words mightn't have meant anything if Natalie Parker hadn't come forward later and corroborated her story with the three alleged confessions Wright had told her over their 18 years together. The confessions Wright allegedly made to Natalie, however, had some small differences, the main difference being that he said it was a truck driver, not a hitchhiker or backpacker, but details regarding the bandsaw, burning the body in the pits, etc. were the same. So there's a couple of ways you can look at that. Maybe Wright was making this all up, or was the first bunch of alleged confessions to Natalie purposely errant on a few details to keep a distance from the cases of missing hitchhikers that might have been in the media while still getting it off his chest? But that wasn't it when it came to Kevin Wright apparently running his mouth about what he and his childhood buddy John Eastoff had been up to in 1982. We said four women came forward, but three alleged confessions, right? Well, the third confession was allegedly made by Wright once again to a mutual friend of his and Natalie's, a woman named Melissa Bell. And she said Kevin Wright had a teary episode during a drunk taxi ride one evening and confessed to the crime as well. She approached Natalie later and told her Natalie had never mentioned anything to anyone prior to this about his other confessions, so that was very concerning hearing he'd said this to someone else and that he and a mate, Johnny, had killed this hitchhiker. 
In 2016, the inquest into Tony Jones's disappearance was reopened, but later adjourned when the Jones family launched a Supreme Court bid for a third inquest to proceed under new legislation. Apparently, Wright and Eastoff had appeared and given testimony during the reopening of the second inquest, uh, where we don't know a lot about what was disclosed other than Eastorf apparently hearing Wright apologise for including his name in these confessions to these women. So he's clearly denying anything to do with Tony Jones's disappearance and probable murder. Eastoff subsequently stressed that he was no longer friends with Kevin Wright due to him including his name in something that was blatantly false. 60 Minutes tracked Kevin Wright down when filming their initial story with the aforementioned women. I think this was before they'd been called to the inquest to testify. Wright's 51 now and running a concreting business. When they caught up with him in typical confrontational 60 Minutes style, Wright hoofed it, not wanting anything to do with the reporter. The third crack at the coronial inquest subsequently opened and is still ongoing, currently adjourned due to the COVID-19 pandemic affecting the world. As I understand, all of the aforementioned witnesses had testified and even Kevin Wright's son, Cale Wright, had been quizzed over things he'd said to the boy over the years, conversations surrounding the use of words that he, Kevin, had had done something bad in his past. From the article I read, Cale seemed fairly non-committal about recalling any details of these alleged conversations, arguing that police taking the statement added the word bad and he'd only said he'd done something. Kevin Wright and John Eastoff are still to give testimony upon the resumption of the coronial inquest. But until then, the clock keeps on ticking for the Jones family and justice for Tony Jones remains elusive. Was he a victim of a coward punch type attack by a random, violent man who later called on his childhood best friend to dispose of the evidence? Possibly. We don't know for sure at this stage. And until we do, until those who've done the wrong thing own up to it, and those who know something continue to come forward and do their part, and the police finally do theirs, Tony Jones will stay another missing person whose fate remains unknown. Wherever he is and whatever happened to him, I know both of us hope the adventurous young man from Perth is at peace and that the Jones family get the closure they deserve someday soon. Our thoughts go out to them. A $250,000 reward remains in place for information leading to the solving of Tony's disappearance. Anyone with information is urged to contact Crime Stoppers and report what they know, anonymously if they wish. And Chloe... That's about it when it comes to the disappearance of Tony Jones. Yeah, well, we've done more than a few missing persons cases now and none of them leave you with anything less than a broken heart for the families. Families of missing people never get to know how or why their family members died or were killed, whichever way it was. Once a family member goes missing, from what I understand, the family never rest, never stop searching or looking for answers. They never get closure. The reality of that is horrible to think about for a few moments, let alone 30 to 40 years. And in missing persons cases, all we have is the speculation. And some of it in this case is interesting. I won't recap it or speculate further, but I'm sure listeners will have their own ideas about what they think happened. I hope the inquest is restarted really soon and I hope it leads to some closure for the family. Beyond that, I hope that someone comes forward with information and Tony can be laid to rest once and for all. 
that's pretty much it for my thoughts, Sean. What are yours? Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of additional thoughts. I just wanted to mention too that they um, Tony's Casey's disappearance was put on those cold case um, playing cards. I think you, you can sort of see in some of the images online when we were looking into this, and they're such a great idea. Um, I think they were just circulated really within the prison systems, but the idea being that, you know, it would have the details on the cards and uh, if anyone knew something or had some information, they could they might recognise the picture and come forward and potentially help. So I think even in a broader sense, those Cards would be a good idea. Um, they are. To be out and about, you, you never know. But, yeah, same as you, Chloe. I just hope the inquest leads to new evidence um, that might be uncovered and, and, and that it leads to an arrest and a trial. Um, echoing your sentiments, you know, thoughts are with the Jones family. Uh, it's been one hell of a time for them over the years. So, uh, and wherever, you know, Tony is, I hope he's, I hope he's at peace, the, the poor fella. So, um yeah, that's about it from me. We'll move on to some happier thoughts, shall we? Sure. Um, well, after our week off, you you attempted to submit a measly nothing, <laughs> which was harshly rejected by me. So you can go first, Sean. What's your happy thought this week? Yeah, well, last week was a stressful one for us both. So yeah. we didn't get to the episode, as uh, as folks will know in, in our Facebook group. But um, I end up... Uh, what, there was a couple of reasons for that, but one of them that sort of panned out was I actually ended up having to get a tooth uh, yanked out, which was it had been sort of bothering me and I'd been just putting it off um, for some time. But, uh, yeah, it was just too much. Uh, the, the pain, I had to go and get it get it taken out. And I suppose the happiness in all of that is that now it's taken out and I've recovered. You know, I've realised how uncomfortable it was making me. I was telling you before we started recording, you just don't – it's amazing what you learn to sort of put up with, you know. Yeah. And now it's it's been taken out. I'm like, uh, oh, that's much more comfortable. So um, back on top of things now and, and able to speak clearly <laughs> without any discomfort. So uh, that, that's my happy thought for the week. That feeling of um, getting better when you've been sick, you know, if you've – um, had a head cold, hopefully it's nothing more at the moment, but, you know, when you realise you can lay down and breathe through your nose or, you know, not cough and splutter everywhere when you sit down and all those things, it's that kind of thing. When it's, you get a tooth taken out or something that you don't realise is super painful, it's the best feeling when you realise how good you feel. Exactly. Yeah, real grateful. Um, so my happy thought, and I've seen some people making fun of these things on social media, so <laughs> it's going to be a mixed one, but I haven't been to one yet. I'm going to a virtual birthday party for a friend um, this weekend, uh, which basically came from we were all talking about the fact that we hadn't been um, wearing clothes suitable to leave the house or you know, wearing makeup or doing anything other than showering and getting into comfy clothes for, you know, weeks on end. And we kind of thought, well, why don't we get together digitally and cook dinner and actually get dressed up? Um, And it happened to fall on someone's birthday. So we said, well, why don't we do that? So we're doing an Italian themed dinner you bring along and yeah, dress up um, however that means, um, which for me will be uh, business on the top and sloth on the bottom. <laughs> I'm not changing out of trackies, but I'll, I'll make myself presentable on the top half for the video conference. <laughs> yeah, you'll do the old newsreader trick, hey? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I reckon a few people would have been um, would have been using that little trick uh, in recent times with the uh, with the remote working and stuff. 
Yeah. uh, uh, Anyway, that sounds good. Very exciting and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. And don't forget if you guys want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime, and you can join us or find us, I should say, on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page, the link of which is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. And a quick quality assurance here at the end, Chloe, uh, as pointed out to us by Rob Zombie Fry on Instagram, Darwin was bombed in 1942, not 1939, as I errantly said at the beginning of the uh, Andy Aubrey episode, clearly confusing the start of World War II with that tragic event in our top end. So my apologies and thank you for pointing that out, Rob Zombie Fry. Good one. Thank you. That's it for us this week. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll be with you all again next week. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Perhaps the police should have got Tom Petty in to help with these leads because the investigation was seemingly free-falling like a refugee. (laughs) You like that one? (laughs) I don't know, like. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a few more Tom Petty ones. Let Let me read these and we'll just pick one. Okay. All right. And we know Tom could run down a dream. He could probably run down a lead too. At least we can be sure he wouldn't back down. (laughs) (laughs) It'll take you 10 minutes to read the next one you've written. It's so long. There's so many things in it. (laughs) And while Tom was learning to fly well before the Foo Fighters ever did, the police were seemingly learning to investigate, something they should have already known how to do which would be like Petty writing a song called Learning to Play Guitar. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God, and Tom Petty Ziggers. Yeah. (laughs) I think we'll just roll with the first one. Although people might get offended by the refugee bit. No, well, that's a Tom Petty song. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll we'll, we'll leave that. We'll leave it at that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 